Good afternoon, everybody. I am Tuleng Patlele. I am uh, one of the credit research analysts in the market CIB research team, and I will be your host for this afternoon's chat. Uh, welcome, everybody, and thank you so much for taking the time out to just join in on today's chat. Um, sit back, relax, grab a pen, grab a paper, grab your iPad or your tablet, and just get ready to, you know, stay engaged and listen in on the chat. Um, so this afternoon's chat is a two parts is part one of a two part series that we're doing on global macroeconomics and um, so how we've um, divided the conversation is that today we'll be discussing how the world got itself into accumulating so much debt and then secondly we'll move over to how do we exit from all of these um, high debt levels. So before we start, just a couple of housekeeping rules. Please do note that the views that are provided by the analysts, they are independent. So these are not net bank groups um, views, but they are that of the analysts that we'll be engaging with in the chat. Um, so this afternoon, I have the pleasure of chatting to um, one of our senior macro strategy analysts. Um, that is Niels. Uh, he's a man that needs no introduction in um, financial markets. So Niels for me is one of the people that comes with years and years of experience in global markets. But not only that, I think he has done this amazing thing where he's just dug this deep well of knowledge and understanding in financial markets. And I think in part one of, of the series, we actually have an opportunity to just drink um, from the well. And then now, uh, Niels, so Niels has this thing where whenever he speaks at the end, he'll say that this is my story and I'm sticking to it. And one of the stories that Niels has always had and he has always stuck to is the importance of the role that central banks play in the uh, monetary system. And then from that, he has just been encouraging um, everyone to pay close attention to money supply, as well as the role that monetary um, supply plays in asset pricing. Uh, with that, Niels, good afternoon. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to welcome you to the fireside chats because you're, 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 you're part of the team. Welcome. Good afternoon. How are you doing, Niels? No, I'm fine. Thank you very much. We, we are really living in very interesting times. Yeah, no, yeah, it, 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 unprecedented, um, very um, interesting times. Um, of which in those times, Niels, uh, right now we are finding ourselves in an environment that's characterized by very low interest rates. And then on top of that, we have, as the globe, accumulated very high levels of debt. And then thirdly, the central bank is like pumping a lot of money in to the system. So, um, you know, can you just with that, you, you, you've mentioned the fact that um, the role monetary policy has taken a 180 degree turn. So from that, can you just let us in on what is the basis of your view that monetary policy has taken an 180 degree turn? And I'd assume that means that monetary policy, whatever intended impact that it's supposed to be having, it's not having. Uh, that is correct. Uh, first of all, thank you very much um, for the opportunity and welcome to everyone and thank you for your time. Uh, I'm very passionate about this. I've been, um, you know, uh, digging into this, as Nuteling said, for many, many years. And I've got, uh, I'm a monetarist in that sense. I truly believe that money supply plays a much bigger role than most people realize. Um, and people think that the last 30 years uh, is a long-term trend. The last 30 years is 
it's, it's relatively short. Uh, the the monetary system we have only started in 1971, and even that has evolved a lot, and we will discuss it. So it is uh, pretty new the monetary system we have, and people tend not to go back. Uh, and as Winston Churchill said, the more you want to know about the future, the better you better know the past. Um, so we'll do, do a little bit of digging in the past, uh, but then I just want to explain the magnitude of the problem that we are facing right now, that the central banks are facing, uh, and why interest rates are at historical lows, and it's likely to remain at that level for a very, very long time. Um, we're not going to make a lot of statements about central banks. I just want to make that point up front. Do not uh, think for one moment I'm talking about the South African Reserve Bank. The South African Reserve Bank is still doing very much what a central bank is supposed to do, and that's protect the value of money. Um, but to get back to the thing's question, why did I make the statement that uh, monetary policy had a 180 degrees turn? Look at the history of fractional banking. That's where we as banks, we only have to hold back a fraction of your deposit and we lend out the money. So it was a very volatile pass for money supply. We will create too much credit and then basically um, it will start, you'll go for a bankruptcy cycle and, and then as we start writing off that loans or the, the people that borrowed the money started defaulting on the the debt, then you get a massive contraction in the money supply and you go into a deflation environments uh, and then you would have a massive contraction, as I say, money supply, then governments, because central banks didn't exist for most of that time, then the governments would print more money and you would go into the next uh, inflationary cycle and it would carry on like that. So the credit cycles used to last only 20, every 23 years. The upside of that is we used to press control of the lead every 23 years and get rid of the debt every 23 years in the system and you would write off all the weak balance sheets and to create to quote Schumpeter's creative destruction uh, um, topic is that you'll write off all the companies with weak balance sheets and only the good and companies without debt um, will survive. Uh, but the volatility around it and, and all the social demise uh, we realized that we got to try and smooth uh, money supply. And we started experimenting, experimenting with uh, central banking in the 1600s already. Uh, the BOE arrived in the late 1700s. Uh, and then in 1913, the real big one arrived, the Fed. Except for the depression in the 1930s, we've had a 100-year cycle, basically, of inflation. Or let's say 80 years from uh, 1944 onwards. So it was mean reverting because every 23 years, uh, the system will basically cleanse itself. But since we created the Fed, we went into a 100-year inflationary cycle. So this has got massive consequences. So we, after a 100-year society, we think in terms of inflation. We think inflation must always rise. Uh, we, after house prices or any asset must always rise. Inflation is endemic to the system. But it is not the case uh, because, as you can see, deflation was as common as inflation. But it allowed because it, uh, we had inflation for 100 years. It was not just the price of bread that's gone up. Also, assets have gone up for 100 years, and subsequently, if the asset side of the balance sheet goes up, we load uh, debt onto the liability side of the balance sheet, and we are at a point, for instance, as in England, and so all in today's money, so it's not money then and money now, all in today's money over this experiment, central banking experiment, the debt per capita in England went up from 100 pounds to over 22,000 pounds. Now we cannot allow assets to fall, and we'll go more into that topic as we carry on. 
because we have to keep this debt solvent. So what has happened since the 1980s, after we stepped off the gold standard in the 1970s, we had a very high inflation era and central banking just became obsessed with protecting um, the system against inflation. Uh, Paul Falker was the first in the late 70s to hike interest rates in America, and he started breaking inflations back in America. We did it around 1988 and the crystals, and then we went into a disinflationary period. But since the 2008 crisis, we were fighting, we started fighting deflation, because uh, then it was for the first time since the 1930s depression, it was the first time that inflation threatened to go into negative territory. And as I already explained, we cannot allow that to happen because we're not concerned about the price of bread, but we can't allow the assets to fall. And central banking is now, over the last 10 years, they've got one thing in mind, and that is actually to create inflation. So where we fought inflation for 30 years, they are now trying to create it. Back to you, Nitalie. Sure. Okay, just... As we keep on with that theme where, you know, you mentioned that quote that uh, the more you know about the past, um, the better you can prepare for the future. Can you just um, take us through the evolution of money, how money has evolved over the years and with that, the role that the central banks have played in that evolution of money? Yes, um, if we look at the pyramid, um, so it is people think in terms of money as something that you have in your pocket. Monetary base or notes and coins, as we call well, notes and coins is a very, very small part of money supply. It must be most probably less than 2% of all the money. But it's hard for us always to think about the concept of money because, as I say, we would like to think it is something you can touch and feel and have in your wallet. But the total monetary base in the world. Um, is only less than 10%. But I'm just going to step back and we're only going to look at the system, how it evolved from 70 onwards. As I said, from 1970 onwards, when we stepped off the gold standard, people thought that's the day the system stopped as we know it and we're off the gold standard known as the fiat monetary system and it never evolved further. It, that is unfortunately not uh, how it worked. The monetary system has evolved dramatically since the 1970s. So what happened in 1971, we closed the gold window and now money is just worth what we think it is. 1972, something very important happened and we're going to get back to that as well, is how important the dollar is in the system. But in 1972, America and the House of Assad in Saudi Arabia signed a deal that all oil will be traded in dollars. And that oil is by far the biggest commodity and that creates a lot of dollars uh, that is rushing around in the global financial system. Then the next major development was in the 1980s, we started making everything tradable, whether it is pork bellies or your mortgage, you can trade everything. But so the original idea behind making everything tradable was that we can hedge it and that the insurance companies or banks can hedge their risk. But it didn't take long before we started using it as gearing and we're going to get back to that when we get to the shadow banking. We also went through a period of what they call uh, great moderation, uh, inflation rates started falling and the world just looked uh, like a very happy place. And then socialism uh, fell in the late 80s and we had the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1988. Now that was a massive, massive development, not just on a political and social front, but actually out of a monetary point of view. Because what most people don't realize, everybody's making the statement lately, assets are going up because the central banks are printing money. 
Well, they've been doing it actually for 30 years. People just didn't realize that. The American trade deficit, when America imports more than it exports, it cannot earn dollars from anybody else because they are the sole provider of dollars into the financial system. So America would literally print dollars when they run um, trade deficits. And they supplied us with in a region of $500 billion every year since 1988. And the dollar monetary base went from 4% of global GDP up to 16% of uh, global GDP. And as commodity cycles started slowing down from 2011, 2012, you can see how the dollar monetary base actually started contracting with the falling price of commodities. Subsequently, it shot up uh, last year uh, the, uh, as the pandemic was unfolding and the Fed grew its balance sheet by another three and a half trillion dollars. But on top of this unbelievable ballooning of the monetary base in the world as America was supplying the world of dollars um, on an annual basis through a trade deficit, we also found new ways to gear that money. So traditionally, the fractional banking worked as you will put your deposit in a bank and then the bank on average lend out that money 14 times. That is the average of that heartbeat chart on the first page. What subsequently happened in the 1990s, as we abolished the Glass-Steagall Act, that was an act that came in existence in 1937, that said an investment bank is not allowed to use um, depositors' money for uh, investment banking purposes. We can only use the bank's own capital. So they abolished that in the 1990s under the Clinton era, and then the debt really took off. Now, originally, I must admit, even myself, I thought this because we have access to the depositor space. It was actually not the case. It's because now all of a sudden we have access to the collateral that was lying in the bank. So the bank owns your mortgage until you pay the last, uh, until you pay the last payment, and then the bank will transfer the house uh, or give it over to you. So I'm just going to use a simple example. It's far more complex than this. Uh, what happened is the banks actually, and that was what the whole 2008 crisis was, the banks actually started and they went and um, by creating a second and a third mortgage against your house. You just didn't know about it. Uh, and that's why the losses were so tremendously big in 2008, because as the, the house prices started falling, the losses were amplified by the tune of 3.2 times because there were three loans on every house. Such a, that it didn't stop there. So the Basel rules came into existence after the 08 crisis to make the banks much safer. And that is the case. The banking system is very safe around the world now, or much safer than it was in 2008. But the shadow banking didn't stop. It just jumped over the fence and it went into the savings industry because the savings industry, especially in Europe and America, where interest rates are zero, they cannot match their liabilities at a zero percent return. So they started gearing the assets they are holding to match their life policies and annuities and the hedge funds are carrying up. Uh, so collateral, we call it the velocity of collateral, with 3.2 loans against every piece of collateral in the banking system in 2008. It is now nearly four in the savings industry according uh, to the IMF. Um, so that was the massive development. So most people don't realize it and the top part of that pyramid above the red line that money, when we gear those assets, it would have been great if all that money went back into the economy, but it didn't go into the economy. Most of it didn't go into the economy. It actually, we used it to buy more assets and we just kept gearing these assets. And that's why we've had this phenomenal run in asset prices over the last 30 years. Back to you. Um, so 
clearly that's the reason why we are having this um, these very high debt levels right now. Um, can you just run us through this debt problem? Like, why is this high level of debt a problem? And yeah. Well, first of all, it's a solvency issue uh, because I mean, assets don't have to fall a lot that uh, the asset side becomes less than the liability side. Um, so the central banks must protect the assets. And, and this is also the change, one of the changes we inform monetary policy, as I said, um, where we, we're fighting inflation, we're fighting deflation, and it is to make sure asset prices don't fall. So there the role of the central banks also changed from where they were supposed to keep money stable. They are now trying to keep asset prices stable because they can't, we cannot afford a drop in asset prices. Uh, the other problems around it is and that is a major problem for the economy, in my opinion. Since the 1980s, the very late 1980s, and through when the shadow banking system started there with the vertical liners on the left, you can see that the household wealth, that is just the value of all the assets in America, just started moving away and away from the GDP. Now, in my opinion, this has got a massive influence on the economy because if I give you a million dollars today, where would you invest it? Would you invest it into the real economy or would we invest it in the markets? Obviously, we'd invest it into the markets because for 30 years, the markets uh, always beat the GDP and you've got the benefit that if something goes wrong, you've got an implied guarantee by the central banks they will come to bail you out. So I think it, it's becoming a drag on uh, the system, this debt, and we've seen it in Japan, that if debt becomes too big part of the economy, you get an absolute crowding out by the government to keep the system going, and there's actually very little savings available for investment. And I'm not even talking about the social consequences, and this is, you've all read about the art, you must have all read articles on the 1% versus the 99% because the middle class is living on the black line and the one percenters or the top 10 percent is living on the green line. So and that is why we have this massive growth in socialism. So it's a question. It's, it's, it's not just a simple answer, but it is a question of solvency, social demise and a lack of growth. And you can see there on the, the bottom panel there, whenever assets come to the red dotted line, that's zero percent. And that's why the 08 crisis was so big. When, uh, the annual change of assets to get close to zero, you can hear that printing presses uh, starting up in a big way. The other problem is that I just want to mention is I pointed out how assets just went, uh, the money supply just was rising nonstop and the inflation cycle was rising nonstop from 1944 upwards after the, uh, after the Depression and World War II. So it also created a whole culture that, as I said, we always live in inflation, but we also as economists just looked at the demand side of the economy. We never bothered to look at money supply because it was always growing and it was never a problem and the central banks were always there to supply us with enough money supply. Uh, and we paid a lot of attention to the, uh, to the normal cyclical business cycle changes in money supply, but we didn't pay any attention to the secular change in money supply and that is potentially a problem because we are all trained as Keynesian economists and we just look at the demand side of the economy and not at the change in the money supply. And then with that, what impact has that had on global asset prices? And then um, I'll use that to latch on to one of the questions that we um, had here, 
where one of the attendees was asking um, if, you know, um, should we start talking about an asset bubble as well on top of that? Yeah, one of the problems, uh, uh, let me give a couple of dead numbers here. In 1990, the, the world was roughly two times yet. Okay, so the, the debt was uh, twice as large as the, the GDP. Currently, um, the world's GDP is in the middle 80s. We're waiting for the, the final numbers to come out for 2020, uh, but it will be somewhere in the 80 trillions. So the regulated debt, that's the, all the debt excluded from the shadow banking stuff. So on that pyramid, that's all the debt below the red line. That is now very close to $300 trillion. Then you can add another close to $200 trillion of the shadow banking money on top of the shadow banking credit on top of that. So all of a sudden now the world is five times geared. Um, so the, the problem is once you keep loading the liability side of the balance sheet uh, with this much debt to get the asset side up, and that is the dark green, to get the financial assets up, by design, the central banks are creating asset bubbles. They have to, because in 1998, when they had to bail out long-term capital, they could get away, I'm just going to use a number, they could get away by a 12p on the stock market. And this is much more than just the equity market. We're talking about house prices, bonds, and that's why bonds are trading at an all-time low. But you could get away with a 12p on the stock market to keep the system solvent. Now, currently, to keep the system solvent, we have very high, in the high 20s PE ratios and stuff around the world to keep the system solvent. So the system is sort of designed that we must keep get assets just higher, you know, inflated higher and higher to keep the system solvent. And, and that's why the fallouts in the markets are, are so humongously big lately because of the highly geared system and the overvaluations of the assets uh, to keep the system solvent. But you can see very clearly uh, from the 1990s app the growth, and that is why I also made the statement earlier, we are designed as economists to look at the change in the gray on the demand side of the economy to understand assets. But unfortunately, that doesn't cut it anymore. You cannot look at that alone. You must look at it with the change in credit. That's the bright green. Because that bright green, because these assets were in the shadow banking, if I gear an existing asset, and as I said, it doesn't end up in the economy, it ends up in another asset. And that is what drove the asset prices up so much. Yes, so um, it had a massive influence on asset prices. Assets are driven by debt. And yes, I do believe we are an asset bubble, so uh, in a huge asset bubble. So someone was actually asking, how would you tell if we are in an asset bubble? So I guess, yeah, we are already in, in an asset bubble. Um, so another story that I know of that Niels has, that he always sticks to is that Niels is always talking about dollar liquidity. Whenever I think Niels, I think dollar liquidity. And Niels, you've been doing um, an extensive amount of research on the quantum of dollars in the financial system. Um, can you just elaborate for us the importance of the dollar post the abolishment of the gold standard? Yes, um, because you know, here we, we're quoting the numbers now that, um, you know, as I pointed out, the growth and debt in the world. These numbers, they come out few and far in between, and it's always backward looking. And we, I cannot tell you on any given day what is the total value of all the debt in the world. But we live in a dollar-based world, and that's uh, officially over the last hundred years, the dollar has been 
uh, not unofficially, the dollar has been the reserve currency over the last hundred years. Between the two wars, we started moving over from the British pound to the, to the dollar. Although the dollar only became the world's reserve currency officially in 1944 with the signing of the Bretton Woods Agreement. So we know because the system is so highly geared on top of the dollars, because global trade takes place in dollars, and that's why the world price is so important, because if the world price goes from $40 to $140, the world producing nations have just so much surplus dollars, which they wash back into the euro dollar system, back into the American dollar system, banking system, or they give them uh, by US government bonds of that. And then that money ends up in the banking system and we gear up that money. So it, over the history, banks would get 14 times, come 2008, banks would get 50 times. So I know that if there's a change in the, uh, the dollar monetary base, the effect thereof on the economy and especially on the assets, is a lot and that's what happened last year i pointed out earlier that absolute vertical uh, explosion higher of the dollar monetary base from 13 to 18 percent of gdp and that is one of the reasons why the dollar was so weak last year there was just this explosion of the dollar monetary base um and and that's how we can work it out then that it, it will have uh, a massive influence on the markets uh, and why, as I said before, the only reason why we look just at the base is because that's the only thing we can measure on a full-time basis. And I use the, in the dollar, the value of the dollar as my real-time barometer is the total pool of money in the world expanding or contracting. And because it was expanding so dramatically last year, that's why we had this falling dollar, which benefited South Africa, but we're going to get to that point. Uh, to the next question, which uh, is actually one of the questions as well from the attendees is, why is QE um, not creating inflation? Why do we have this deflation problem? So as I pointed out um, on the, at the pyramid. Um, Sorry, so Niels, just, just to add on to that question, where another part that they added was that why is QE having the opposite intended effect in the US, but then in a country like Zimbabwe, it created um, hyperinflation as well? All right, so this is the, thank you very much. This is the right job. If you look at the Zimbabwean uh, financial system, um, they, um, they do not have anything above uh, the red line. They only, well, they basically have very little broad money because it's not a very well-developed financial system. So they very much operate, if we get now the gold part at the bottom, they very much just operate in base money. So the whole economy is basically a cash-based economy. So if the central bank do a QE, then unfortunately it immediately uh, changes the, the total pool of money in the system. But as I explained earlier, that base money in the in the developed world of these very well-developed financial systems, the base money is less than, it's, it's in single figures. Uh, because it differs from country to country, but it's less than 10%. So by the changing that doesn't necessarily change the total pool of money supply because the velocity of money has been falling like a ton of bricks since 1998 already and accelerated down in 98 and uh, in 08 and accelerated even further after the pandemic. So the top part of the pyramid is shrinking faster than they putting money in at the bottom. And Bernanke knew this very, very well. Um, that uh, that he can pump money into that bottom because the top part is busy collapsing. He was just trying to stop uh, the top part collapsing completely by pumping so much money into the bottom. And that's why a change in the monetary base is not necessarily going to lead to inflation. 
where the Americans was very successful last year, and that's one thing that worked for them, is that the Fed in a way became the commercial banker. They went and said to the banks, we'll guarantee all the, the loans for you. So more than 50% of all commercial loans uh, that they issued in America last year effectively had a government guarantee on. Now, they, the Federal uh, the Treasury, because the Treasury was actually backing the Federal Reserve, uh, the Treasury has subsequently removed that facility, and that's why I'm a bit skeptical if that growth they had in broad money supply last year, the M2 at 27%, will carry on this year because that guarantee has been removed subsequently. Um, yeah, there's, there's so much to talk about, and yeah, I think we, yeah, we have about 15 minutes left, so... Um, I'll just continue with all the some of the other sections that we wanted to cover for part one. Um, so one cannot talk about economics and not talk about income inequality with that. Um, so it has been said that central banks have been contributing to income inequality. Um, I'd just like to get a view, your views, Niels, on that. The Fed uh, is trying to deny it. The other evening, I think it was actually the report, one of the reporters from Bloomberg's, um, ask uh, Jay Powell, but aren't you creating inequality? Now he's trying to talk it away, but unfortunately they are responsible for inequality. Pure mathematically, if you drop the discount factor, um, then the present value goes up. So pure mathematically it happens. But as I pointed out um, on the, these two charts, it's very clear as they add, if they keep adding this cheaper money to that we create more debt in the system, is ending up in the asset markets and not in the real economy. So but besides that, I was very fortunate at an international conference in New York. Um, I was part of a group that had um, a breakfast with Bernanke and he said to us, one of the reasons uh, for QE was that he could control the risk premium, sorry, it gets a little bit technical, but that he was trying to compress the, the risk part of the bond yield. And by doing that, it allowed us to reprice assets because the, because on a risk-adjusted basis, the, system, the entire financial system could take on more risk. So they actually targeted assets on purpose in 2008 to restore the balance sheets because, as I pointed out there, you can see it on the bottom panel, how severely depressed household wealth became. And they had to get the assets back up. It's not a position the Fed wants to be in. Trust me, I, I, they hate to be in this position. But they know right now they cannot allow market rates to go where they belong uh, because this 0% interest rate environment is very costly on the pension fund industry. And um, it, it, so it comes at a huge, huge, huge price, this 0% interest rate. Um, I'll, so one of the questions that I've seen here is someone is asking who are the holders of the rise in debt? needed to push asset prices in excess of GDP? Is it broad-based and where would um, cracks appear soonest if this circular in the circular trajectory? Well, the bond market, so uh, that's quite ironically in 1907, uh, when we started with the whole Fed experiment, Katunas was very smart and said, if you create an organization to bail out the system, you will end up owning the entire system. So yes, um, the Fed is becoming the biggest holder of US government debt. The Bank of Japan holds now, I think in excess of 50% of all the government bonds. Uh, it's the single biggest shareholder of equities in America, in Japan. So what is happening is 
the lot that a lot of the assets are being moved to the central banks as they are printing money in a bizarre way central banks was created as the epitome of you know capitalism and stuff but in a sense it's becoming a, a, a socialistic system where we control it's essentially planned economy not from the demand side but from the money supply side uh, but yes uh, but the problem is not in the bond markets. Central banks can control the bond markets because they control the base rate and the, uh, the policy rate. Uh, but it's the equity markets with these very extended uh, PE ratios and all other uh, measurements of how expensive the market is. Um, that is potentially a problem and also house prices. If if, uh, if a property is so expensive that um, you cannot uh, service, for instance, uh, the, the mortgage with, uh, with the rent, then basically the, the property is overpriced as well. So, yeah, it will be broad-based um, to have all this. What we need is we need the E-part. We need earnings in the economy. We need growth that will boost these asset prices, whether it's property or equity. You need growth. But, and that's my problem with this. Asset prices beating the GDP for 30 years, it's very hard to create growth because the savings is very slow to move into the economy and that's why this MMT, Modern Monetary Theory, which is a fancy word for Keynesian economics, why they, the government wants to start playing a bigger role in the economy that we can create growth and create the E part, uh, the earnings part or uh, in the economy. Um, so our guest, can you please allow me to go to the last section that we have prepared for today and then should we have um, more time, I'll move on to ask Neil some of the questions that you guys have fielded um, on there. Um, so, Neil, you spoke um, about the evolution of money. You spoke about the role of monetary policy in global asset prices. You also spoke about dollar liquidity and um, quantitative easing by major central banks. Um, and then you also spoke about uh, the role that central banks are playing in uh, income inequality. And then you mostly touched on that from a global perspective. So just in closing today, can you just walk us through why all of that is important for South Africa? We just, let's just bring it home. Well, if we look at the pyramid, uh, apologies uh, to my colleagues that I have uh, all over the show. If you look at, that is uh, what you're looking at there on the pyramid behind it are these vertical bars. So that is basically um, every vertical bar at the back is a trillion dollar and a hundred dollar notes. The little white square there is the total size of the South African economy. So as these uh, unbelievable amounts of credit uh, in the world um, change and the price of it change and the, the central banks, the developed world central banks change their monetary base, South Africa is absolutely a price taker. As much as we would like to believe that the RAND is absolutely the consequence of the South African trade balance, of the South African growth story, it is not. Unfortunately, these global flows, the world's financial markets have become a very small place um, that money um, moves over borders very, very quickly. So, for instance, so last year, as I explained, America was very successful in create, um, creating negative real rates. Uh, they had an absolute uh, explosion in monetary base and in broad money. That weakened the dollar substantially, and that was a major driving force of the RAND moving back. Uh, from the 1935 or something back to the current levels of 1450. So that's how that change in money supply comes into our, in our currency, it comes into our bond market, 
Um, we run very big deficits in the country and we need the foreign flows. So we are um, to finance um, the deficits in the country. So we are very, very exposed to changes in global liquidity. And in, your, in all the dealing rooms, you will hear people will talk about the changing liquidity situation and whether it's risk on or risk off. And the dollar is always a very good indication whether you're on a risk on or a risk off phase. Um, yeah, thank, thank you for um, that, Neil. So that kind of concludes part one of the conversation and then we'll pick it uh, back up where, you know, we spoke about what has happened, what is happening now. So then how do we move on from the current situation? Um, that will be part two. So please do look, look out for that invite and make sure you RSVP and join in on that conversation. And then maybe also just prepare yourself as well for the conversation and thinking of ways of how we can get out of the um, current debt situation. Uh, so Niels, I think now when you talk financial markets, you cannot not talk Bitcoin and I'm seeing a couple of questions here on Bitcoin. Um, there's two that I picked up, so I'll just um, lump them up together, where one person is saying that Bitcoin is at $48,000, is that a sign of deflation? And then the second question is, how do you think a decentralized currency like Bitcoin could impact the, the, fight, the, the fight money system? I'm not sure if that's like the right word, the fight money systems and government's ability to control inflation and asset prices. Do you think this could pose a significant threat to central banks? So, as you said earlier, that's where we would like to go in the next fireside chat. Uh, but yes, uh, Bitcoin is a very hot topic now. Uh, the first chart we discussed was that heartbeat chart between inflation and deflation. It, that is one of the biggest econo economic, uh, can I say, challenges we've ever had since when gold, uh, since money was rocks. Um, certain types of shells, salt, and that's why salt pot has only got one hole because it used to be, we used it as money in the past. Uh, is what is money and how much must be within system. And so there's only four ways to get rid of debt. Either you pay it off, but you need the growth and the economic growth to get the earnings to pay it off or the income to pay it off. Um, you can default, which uh, is unlikely to happen because that's what happened in 1930s and then half of the banks went bust and it was one of the deepest recessions in history. Uh, the other one is you start um, uh, I'm losing myself here, but but basically what the one the central banks are going for now is to debase the currency, that you inflate the problem away, that's what the Germans did in the 1920s, uh, to pay back all the war damages and stuff like that, and that unfortunately has also got a very bad history, and so that's why Bitcoin was created, it was a takeover. While I'm not personally the single biggest Bitcoin fan, is that I do believe um, that um, oh yeah, the last one is that you save and pay off the debt and stuff like yeah. that. But then you have a paradox of thrift. Yes. Since maybe this is like kind of part of our part two, maybe let's park it here because we have four minutes left, and then we can just answer one more question here, and then we'll just um. Okay, I'll just make one statement. Okay. I don't think governments will allow Bitcoin to take over because the the printing press is politically one of the most important things. I cannot believe that central banks will allow Bitcoin to take over. Thank you, Nick. 
Uh, okay, last question to um, wrap up this afternoon's chat. Are markets still driven by fundamentals or just driven by um, the amount of cash in the market? Uh, the oil market currently trades at higher than pre-COVID level levels. Reports have shown that surplus oil has come off faster than expected at current, but there's still enough access supply in the market to ensure that at current demand levels, the market will continue to have excess supply over a prolonged period. Does the current level of the dollar impact the current price spike in oil? So you can see since 2008 uh, that most of you know, the growth was in asset markets and very little in the real economy. So it's impossible to say that QE doesn't go into the economy at all. That will be factually just not correct. Uh, it is very hard always to work out what is the exact percentage of what of this liquidity that they are pumping into the system ends up in the real economy and, and how much of that ends up in the asset markets. But um, so, but yes, uh, I do believe, and you just, if I can take one um, number as an example, global financial flows is three times bigger than trade flows. Um, so yes, uh, if I have to take a thumb sack, I'll say you know, two thirds of um, all assets are driven by liquidity and a third is driven by the underlying fundamentals. But that will be absolutely just a thumbs up number. Um, and unfortunately, we have to wrap it up there for um, this afternoon's uh, session. Um, but we, like any other chat, we will note the questions that you have on there. And I'll try to make sure that Niels does address some of those questions in part two um, of our sessions. I don't know if Niels, if maybe you have any other closing remarks for this particular segment. Now, I just want to apologize that we didn't get to all the answers. Uh, and that's exactly why we've decided to do this over um, two uh, chats, because I realized that a lot of people actually didn't realize the magnitude of the problem and how it developed. And um, I promise that we'll get either back in writing or that we'll answer most of the questions in the next chat. And thank you very much for your time.